Smart is a love letter for any young woman who has ever stayed home on a Friday night to watch a Ken Burns documentary. That's from Chandler Levac of Globe and Mail, one of my hometown papers there in Toronto. Excellent blurb and excellent movie. Booksmart is one of the movies we're reviewing this time here on Cinephile. Thank you so much, as always, for checking us out. Please do spread the love. Go to uh, Apple Podcasts and subscribe, unsubscribe, then subscribe again. Tell everyone you know to subscribe and rate and review. As always, we appreciate uh, all the feedback we get from all of you. Um, I don't know exactly how it works, but my understanding is it's a big deal because bottom line is when the reviews add up and people are listening, the sponsors you know go from there. So honestly, if you're a fan, just please take a few minutes for us and uh, let us know what exactly it is about the pod that you're enjoying and even some healthy criticisms as well. Uh, here's a couple of uh, takes right now. This is uh, thoughtful and entertaining from Scant60. Initially, I had my doubts about a movie podcast by a sports guy, but it rapidly became apparent that Mr. Verk has a true love and passion for movies. I eagerly await each new episode. While I might not always agree with his opinions, I appreciate the thought put into each review and interview. That's very nice. Um, we've got one here. Um, Music-inspired movies. You mentioned Walk the Line, but not Ray. Chris Rock called Walk the Line Ray for white people. I love them mo- both. Uh, great interview by Sean Fennessy on a Stinger podcast with the director of Blinded by the Light. Well, that's good. We'll have to check that out. I love Gurinder Chadha. Certainly excellent work there. Um, Riz CT, love the Soprano segment, just as good as before. One more here from Nig, A-W-E-N-I-G. AV does an outstanding job breaking down film. His recommendations are always insightful. Pod is missing a monthly visit from Ryan Rossillo. Miss the two together. Always had good times there with Rosillo. Maybe we'll put out a uh, an ask for him at some point. Um, we got lots coming up here today. The Directors of Freaks, a film which I mentioned previously. That film is coming out September 13th. Release date changed, which I hope is nothing but good news for the filmmakers. You'll hear them talk about the film, what it was like working with the actors, and why it's so challenging to make a supernatural film in today's climate. But we begin with Booksmart. Terrific movie. Academic overachievers Amy and Molly thought keeping their noses to the grindstone gave them a leg up on their high school peers, but on the eve of graduation, the best friends suddenly realized that they had missed out on the special moments of their teenage years. Determined to make up for lost time, the girls decide to cram four years of not-to-be-missed fun into one night, a chaotic adventure that no amount of book smarts could prepare them for. It's a real celebration of that time-worn genre, which would be high school comedies. And the real fun here is Caitlin Dever and Beanie Feldstein. They are the stars as Amy and Molly. I'm unfamiliar with their work at all, but I predict both will have excellent careers because they both are so um, self-aware in this film and funny and naturalistic. And I can see them both being really, really successful, particularly Beanie Feldstein. She's got a bit of a Melissa McCarthy thing going on there. Um Jason Sudeikis, Lisa Kudrow, Will Forte also in the cast as far as veteran comedic chops. But honestly, this is totally held together by Amy and Molly, Caitlin and Beanie, because as the uh, plot synopsis suggests, they realize that they're going to make out for for missed time here. They want to go get after and have a good party, and it is raunchy and crass, but in many ways, it feels like it has the DNA of a Judd Apatow film, because Apatow's movies, if you think of this as a female super bad, or in many ways like a younger version of Bridesmaids, you know, even amidst the projectile vomiting and, you know, sexual jokes and crassness, which you expect, uh, there's also a lot of heart and uh, some some genuine uh, sweetness between these main characters and about what their friendship means and their friendship to them. And it's also a variation on the high school comedy because uh, one of the characters is gay. So you haven't seen that before when you're watching Heathers or, you know, whatever number of films, Juno or uh, Lady Bird. So, you know, in this case, one of the major characters, it's about her relationship 
or Desire to Be with Another Woman. So I haven't seen that in high school comedy per se. Uh, so it definitely feels contemporary, and the soundtrack is terrific. And uh, lots of good hip-hop in the, in the movie. And also, what's really notable is who the director is. That would be Olivia Wilde. That's right. A talented actress here showing her flair for the dramatics. And again, self-assured is the right word for her directorial style. I don't think there's many missteps along the way. Uh, it's rapid pacing. Unlike an Apatow film, it does not feel like it's uh, 15 or 20 minutes too long. It's a tidy 95. Uh, it hits the ground running. Uh, you get the hijinks of them going out for the parties and aftermath, and et cetera, and there's there's not much wasted time at all in this. So I think Olivia Wilde, definitely. I'm curious to see what her next film is going to be. I'm sure that there's many studios now lining up to try to see what her next picture is. But Booksmart's a film that was really well-reviewed. It came out earlier this summer. I finally got a chance to see it on DirecTV. Paid the 17 bucks just to watch it rather than have to leave my couch. Um, so I really enjoyed it. I'm giving it three Maple Leafs. Joe, I know you haven't seen Booksmart, but I'm sure you've read some of the accolades about this latest high school comedy. Yes, I have. And you're right. I'm really excited to see what uh, Olivia Wilde did with the movie, and I'm excited to see what project she works on next. But it seems like the funniest thing that's going to come out in 2019 for all the right reasons. Yeah, in an era where there's not a lot of great comedies anymore, like Game Night was the only comedy I had in my top ten this year. You're right. I mean, the, the movie comedy has died. There was an excellent article in The Hollywood Reporter about that and that, you know, a lot of comedies now are on the small screen are just big-budget comedies. There's not that, you know, hangover, train wreck, whatever it is. You're not always looking for that ten-pole comedy. Very rarely, you know, Tag came out. That was a huge bomb uh, with John Hamm. I mean, there's just – it's not very often. So I'm with you. I think there's kind of a small – Indie comedy, which is exceptionally well-reviewed, like 98% Rotten Tomatoes, that's probably going to be one of the funniest movies of this year, not only because of the lack of uh, quality around it, but because it does indeed succeed on its own merit. A couple other films here before we get to some movie news. I saw Ace Ventura again, 25th anniversary, so I thought I would revisit it. Uh, I think it's even better than I realized, and I saw it when I was 16 years old, and my buddy Jeff Lovelock, one of my best friends and old roommate, High school friend. He he championed the film like nobody else. I mean, he he was telling everybody this was he was like the French with Jerry Lewis. He was like, This film's incredible. And uh, I remember Siskel and Ebert panning the movie, and uh, it was a huge success, open at number one, made $75 million, and Jim Carrey movie star was born. And years later, Carrey revealed this in the Hollywood Report. He said one of the great thrills of his life was after Siskel and Ebert panned it and the movie was so good, ten years later they actually revisited the movie. And said, you know, Jim, we were wrong. You, you, you were doing a tip of acting we just weren't used to. And uh, congrats, because this really was the birth of something special. And he said it was one of the greatest moments of his life to see Siskel and Ebert offering a mea culpa to him. If you, in case you care about the story, it's about the dolphin mascot of Miami's NFL team being abducted. And so Ace Ventura, Jim Carrey, a zany private investigator who specializes in finding missing animals, looks into the case. He's got Courtney Cox in the mix. Dan Marino's there. But honestly, this is all about Jim Carrey's comedic genius. And you just you have to appreciate just how this guy will do anything for a laugh. I mean, you hear that often about comedians, but you get the sense watching this movie, the rubber-faced comedian that is Jim Carrey, in many ways uh, a descendant of Jerry Lewis in terms of the physical comedy. But I, I can't think of another guy. Like I think of him and Robin Williams. Um, that's what Lovelock would say to me. He's like, it's Robin Williams and it's Jim Carrey. Those are the guys who are the most manic, the most zany, and the most creative. I mean, the movie features a scene of the guy talking to his ass. He literally, can I ask you a few questions? Later on, he asks for a mint to Banaka. It's eminently quotable. Uh, Ventura, yes, Satan, which is Mark Margolis, my brother pointed out from Breaking Bad. Uh, uh, Salamanca, Salamanca, yeah, Hector Salamanca. Um, but there's so many good scenes. I mean, it comes out of the bathroom. Do not go in there. 
<coughs> like I said, it's eminently quotable and uh, just really funny because of the fact he's willing to do anything for a laugh. I also love the whole sequence in slow motion where he, he imitates <laughs> you know, catching the ball and he does it in slow motion. Then he goes, how about we do it rewind? I'm like, that that physical gift for comedy is amazing. And uh, like I said, it was the birth of Jim Carrey movie star. Uh, somebody did accuse me on Twitter of being a huge homer because, of course, he's a proud Canadian. And uh, actually grew up a very tough childhood. So part of his life, he was he was basically homeless. So living out of their car. His dad was a janitor for a while in high school. Uh, grew up in Newmarket, Ontario. But um, obviously... He's certainly made up for it once his Ventura hit and all the movies he made after that. I mean, the 90s comedy of Jim Carrey is good as it gets. You haven't seen it in a long time. Go back and revisit Ace Ventura. Joe, I, I know you're so young, so I'm guessing you weren't even alive when Ace Ventura came out. But, but you have seen it since then. Oh, yeah. this was I've probably seen it 100 times at this point. It, it is so good. It's so funny. To your point, I don't know who else could possibly have played this role, any other actor of the 90s. And I actually, Rick Moranis was first approached to play the role of Ace Ventura, but he turned it down to do the live-action Flintstones movie, uh, which led... Oh, my God. Yeah. Can you imagine having an Ace Ventura with Rick Moranis over Jim Carrey? Like fellow Canadians, so I, I want to rep Rick Moranis, and certainly there's some Honey, I Shrunk the Kid listeners <laughs> fans out there, but you're right. That, that's absurdity. You couldn't even imagine the movie without Rick Moranis, without uh, Jim Carrey, sorry. Oh, yeah. And I think the, the sequel is equally as good, too. Yeah, Keith Law and Steve Bune and a couple of my very uh, liberal friends did point out the film is not aged particularly well. It is uh, transphobic. So I should point out, I don't think a movie like this would be made today. Certainly the uh, major through line there about Sean Young, Einhorn is Finkel, Finkel is Einhorn. But when I'm watching the movie, I, I don't view it through the prism of today. I'm viewing it through uh, the experience of then. And, and like I said, if you enjoyed the film then, I think you'd certainly enjoy it now. I also watched, uh, for the 25th anniversary, Reality Bites, which I had never seen before. I know it was... You know, uh, got good reviews, and certainly, I think I learned a lot of high school girls who loved the movie. Maybe they just were all in love with Ethan Hawke. But uh, after college, Lelina, a Winona Ryder, finds it, films a documentary about herself, friends as they flounder in their attempts to forge relationships and begin careers. Vicky, Janine Garofalo, who I love, because she was great in the Larry Sanders show. Uh, she's very good in the movie. She works retail, endless string of one-night stands, awaiting the results for HIV test. She also then gets involved with a writer's character with Yuppie Michael while maintaining a love-hate relationship with Troy, who's undergoing an existential crisis. Um, it's been 25 years, obviously, since the moon came out, but I thought it held up pretty well. I think it's smart. Uh, I thought it was really deft direction by Stiller. He not only co-stars, but he directed the film. Very rare for him, with the exception of Escape at Danamora, finally, his acclaimed miniseries, in which he's able to direct and not star. Otherwise, you really couldn't get those movies made, whether it's this or uh, Zoolander or uh, Tropic Thunder, you name it. So I thought um, it was certainly a movie of the 90s. I mean, I could appreciate the boredom and the ennui that all these characters feel and that kind of angst. It reminded me certainly of 1994 and the grunge, and, and Hawk in particular. I mean, I, I think for years he was typecast afterwards as this... You know, that archetype of the dreamy rocker musician who's just, you know, apathetic, but he's also angry. But at the same time, he's obviously uh, got the heart of a romantic and the girls fall in love with him. So I, I thought uh, Hawk was perfect to cast. And, of course, he nailed the role as he always does. And Winona Ryder is very charming. Um, and Stiller, I thought, played the role of the uptight yuppie well. So I thought it was well cast. Enjoyable film. I, I You know, it's been taking 25 years, Joe, because I was like, this isn't my kind of movie. But I thought for uh, that rom-com genre, it was actually pretty good. I agree with you 100%. I watched it last night and it gave me legitimate anxiety, um, mainly because I, I feel like it's very relatable for a lot of people. They can go back to right after they graduated college, was living with a bunch of people, and think about where their life was going at that time. And I think the movie really hit those notes. 
Yeah, let us know what you think of Ace Ventura or Reality Bites. As always, you can tweet us, CinephilePod, or me individually, Adnan S. Ferg. Some entertainment news where we get to the directors of Freaks, Eddie Murphy. Wow, this is huge news. Finally returning to host Saturday Night Live in season 45. More than three decades, he's returning to the show. It's December 21st. His first turn as host in 35 years. Amazing. He's largely avoided SNL since 1984. When he departed the show to pursue a film career, made his SNL debut in 1980 at the age of 19. I'm so happy he's back. I mean, hopefully we'll get Buckwheat and Gumby and all the rest of it. But, I mean, it's amazing to think that Eddie Murphy's back. Uh, Jim Miller, who we're going to have at some point in the podcast, James Andrew Miller, he's the author of critically acclaimed books about ESPN, CAA, and Saturday Night Live. He's been tweeting about this, and he said that it is not understanding to say Eddie Murphy saved Saturday Night Live. Like, without Eddie Murphy, there would be no SNL. He was enormous for the show. He was one of the biggest stars they ever had. This is going to be just massive, massive news. So we'll definitely get Jim on at some point to talk about Eddie Murphy and his uh, relevance. But certainly if you're a Murphy fan, you're all over this. Also, the Breaking Bad movie coming to Netflix sooner than you might think. October 11th, El Camino, a Breaking Bad movie. Aaron Paul returning as the series popular meth cook Jesse Pinkman. Last seen leaving a Nazi compound while driving off to an unknown location. Details for the film spotted by a Reddit user. Uh, not sure Brian Cranston is going to be in the film if he will appear as Walter White. But the movie will be uh, on AMC following the Netflix premiere, written and directed by Vince Gilligan, the creator of Breaking Bad. Joe, can't wait for this. Super, super pumped. I'm really excited. I wonder what the timeline will be for the movie, exactly how far into his evasion from the law the movie will take place. Um, A lot of uh, questions in the air right now for a lot of Breaking Bad fans. Absolutely. I've I, I got to think Cranston will show up. I mean, God, you can't make a Breaking Bad movie without him. You get some flashbacks and make it happen. And lastly, Disney Plus just confirming a string of original programming will be available on launch day November 12th, along with a first look at their individual posters, forthcoming streaming platform, uh, announcing the slate via their Twitter account. But really, all I care about is that there's going to be a show with Jeff Goldblum. The World According to Jeff Goldblum will be hosted by Goldblum, produced by National Geographic. The show will follow Goldblum as he travels the globe, explores pretty much whatever interests him. Sneakers, jewelry, ice cream, tattoos, Korean barbecue, square dancing, synchronized swimming, and much more. I I wasn't sure if I was going to get Disney+, Plus, even with a a raft of kids and all the Disney movies. But honestly, Joe, if Goldblum's involved, I I might have to be involved with it. I mean, this I watched him the other day on Colbert. He is one of the most idiosyncratic eccentric characters you'll ever see, but but completely charming and funny and unique. Like, if, if Jeff Goldblum's around, I'm in. 100% agree. Can't wait for Jeff Goldblum. Watch this show. It seems like a Anthony Bourdain, but with Jeff Goldblum, which I'm really I'm really excited to see. <laughs> Do you imagine that when they're pitching the show? It's going to be Anthony Bourdain mixed with Jeff Goldblum. You had me at Goldblum. Right, Let's make exactly. the show. <laughs> Let's make it happen. Uh, now it's time for our special guest. On June 14th, your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley! It's anger! Let me at him! Fear! Safety checklist is complete! Disgust! Ew! Ew! Sadness is in the house! Oh no! Hello! I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going! Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only theaters June 14th. Get tickets now.
Earlier on Cinefy, I talked to the film Freaks, which is terrific. It hits theaters Friday, September 13th. That's right. A scary movie coming out on Friday the 13th. And it's so nice of Zach Lepofsky and Adam Stein to join us right now. These guys are not only the co-writers, also the co-producers and the co-directors of the film, uh, which I think all of you are going to really, really enjoy. Zach, I'll start with you because I see in the bio you're Canadian. So a fellow Canadian, let's start with that. A former child actor, (laughs) visual effects specialist. What part of Canada are you from? Uh, I am from Vancouver on the West Coast, where I uh, grew up doing kid shows when I was very young and eventually becoming a nerd and loving computers. And eventually that became making movies and doing visual effects on my own movies. And and now I'm lucky enough to do that, you know, for real. <laughs> and Vancouver is uh, actually where we filmed the movie, too. Um, it was very much supported by the, the Vancouver film community the whole time we were we were making it. Oh, that's great to know. You know, once I interviewed David Duchovny on this podcast, and I was talking with the X-Files being filmed in Vancouver, and he said, you know what I learned about Canada? And I said, what's that? He goes, the curling. He goes, God, you guys love your curling up there. I said, well, maybe that's more, you know, definitely in the, in the prairies. I said, I'm not as much in Toronto. He said, no, no, the, the curling was great. Hurry hard. I used to watch it all the time. I said, that's good. David Duchovny learned that from Vancouver, all about curling. Uh, Adam, you graduated from Harvard in the directing program, USC School of Cinematic Arts. Tell me about that journey um, and how that played a part in getting you to this moment oh man yep it's uh it's been a long and winding road i i started kind of doing theater um acting in theater and then directing theater especially when i was um, at harvard um, which didn't have anything in the way of filmmaking program um and so i kind of you know was directing plays and then also taking a lot of classes where i watched movies and wrote papers about them but at some point i was like let's put these things together and i started you know making films in my free time and just completely got hooked moved out to LA started working my way up in the industry started as kind of an assistant editor and then started editing independent films and eventually went to USC for film school just made a ton of shorts and, and a couple of years after is when I met Zach um, we met on a on a reality show which is a very unusual way for for uh, people to meet um, but we became as best friends afterwards <laughs> yeah 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 I'm sure uh, you uh, came across this in your research, um, but we met on this show called On the Lot, which Spielberg produced with Mark Burnett. It's a competition show for filmmakers um, in 2007. And we we just, uh, we were supposed to compete against each other and be making short films every week, but we just became best friends and then started collaborating afterwards. Well, it's honestly a terrific collaboration you guys have put out so far and hope there's more to come. Zach, what was the genesis for Freaks, this um, really atmospheric film which preys upon paranoia and claustrophobia and elements like that? Yeah, I mean, the film was inspired by a lot of different things and kind of we made it for a lot of different reasons. You know, Adam and I were struggling filmmakers trying to make movies and they all just kept not happening. And so we actually ended up going on this long walk in L.A., and just being like, you know what, we just got to make a movie no matter what, just with just with what we have right now, not, you know, not with what we hope we could make, because that's why we keep getting screwed up. We keep trying to make movies with stuff that we don't have. So what do we have? And we kind of asked ourselves and we had Adam's house. We had Adam's family had a restaurant and Adam had a son <laughs> and I didn't have anything. And so basically we were like, OK, what, what's the movie we could make with the two of us acting in it? with Adam's kid playing the kid, shooting it in his house and shooting it at his family's restaurant. And that was sort of the very beginning 
of freaks. And it was eventually became much bigger than that. Eventually Bruce Dern played the role that I was going to play <laughs> and Emil Hirsch played the role that Adam was going to play. But we kind of concentrated on just the essential elements that we had so that at every point we could make sure that we could make the movie. And if we got more than that, then great. But if not, we could still make it. And so the kind of creative inspiration really came from that idea of using Adam's son. So at the time he was um, like five years old and it was really fascinating to us to see how he was kind of seeing the world for the first time and learning what was real and what wasn't. And basically his perspective on the world was just so fascinating that we thought it could be really cool to, to, to make a movie entirely from the perspective of a kid, but in a science fiction world. So you don't know as much about how the world works as they do. So it really puts you in the, in the seat, right? And we even shot, you know, the movie from two and a half feet off the ground so that every angle in the movie is from the same height as the kid. So that you're really just like there with, with this child. And in the film, it's played by Lexi Kochler, who's a, uh, so it's a girl. Um, but that inspiration initially was just to kind of do a sci-fi thriller, but from the perspective of a kid so that the audience has to experience it along with them. Uh, that's a fascinating backstory, because I was about to say, and I, I do want to get some Bruce Dern and Emile Hirsch stories, but honestly, Adam, I thought Lexi Kolker was terrific, and I credit to you guys, not just her, I'm sure she's talented and, and worked hard, but to get a great child performance, I mean, again, I think like Haley Joel Osment or Sixth Sense, like it's, you've got to be able to kind of have the right um, face for it and the right performance, but the way that she's so unnerved by it and yet naturally curious, um, I say that as a dad myself, that you know the way kids are so precocious and you're trying to shelter them. I mean, well, it's great about the movies. It works on so many different levels. Like Hirsch's character is trying to protect her from something, but just naturally kids being kids, they always kind of wander off and do other things. And now that Zach explained the backstory, that's even more fascinating to me. Like when do you explain to kids, hey, dinosaurs, you know, <laughs> they're not roaming the earth anymore. This is just a show we're watching. But uh, mm. maybe speak mm. specifically, Zach, about Lexi and just how you were able to hit a home run with her. Yeah, I mean, she is, she's really special. And, and when we found her and we were, when we were filming with her, it, it definitely had the feeling of, oh my gosh, this, this, is a, this is a future superstar. Sort of felt like seeing Natalie Portman, uh, you know, before she was Natalie Portman in The Professional or, or Drew Barrymore when she was very young. Sort of like, wow, what have we found here? Um, she just has very um, easy access to her emotions. And, and is a very kind of raw, intense performer. And that was one of the things that we wrote into the character from early on, because being a dad, you know, I, I have a very fiery, uh, emotional uh, pair of kids now. <laughs> and they, they are incredibly happy and incredibly, um, you know, get incredibly sad or angry and, and, and they're just very fiery. And you don't see that a lot in movies about children. You normally see kids as playing kind of either cute or sometimes in, in independent films, you see sort of a very kind of measured performance, really where the kid is, is an observer of things. And we watched movies like Beasts of the Southern Wild and Room and Florida Project, um, like kind of like you were saying, which have amazing child performances. And when we finished writing the script, we were like, oh my gosh, are we, are we completely stupid here? We've written a movie where a kid 
not only is in every scene, but is really driving the scenes with an emotional intensity that you don't really see in a lot of a, a lot of movies, even when they do have kids in the leads. But when we found Lexi in the audition process, she just really um, tapped into those to those natural emotions that kids have. Um, and then, you know, in terms of the other side of it, the, the fatherhood side. Yeah, a lot of it is drawn um, kind of the emotions I had as a as a new dad, really feeling like you want to protect your kid and teach them about the world, but also shelter them. Um, and in particular, the, the sort of feelings of insecurity you sometimes have as a dad, or at least I did, where you feel like, oh my gosh, I don't, I, I, I really want to protect this kid and, and shelter them, but I, I don't really even know how to do this well. And, and the kind of sometimes losing your temper as a dad and then immediately feeling bad about it. Um, the sort of messy aspects of parenthood, again, was something we didn't really, hadn't really seen a lot in other films that have been made. You don't really see the kind of messy, kind of ugly side of, of trying to be a parent and sort of failing at it sometimes. Um, and that was something we really wanted to capture. Um, to the point where, you know, by the end of the movie, you, you, you understand where this parent is coming from, even though they're not always good at it. I mean, in particular, with Emil's character, he's someone who's been on the run. He's someone who comes from sort of a, a, a rough background where maybe he's done some stuff that's criminal in his past. He doesn't, he's been alone with her for seven years. He doesn't know how to be a good dad. He doesn't have any mentorship or, or parenting classes or parenting books. Or, or role models. Um, he's just trying to do his best and he's not always good at it. Yeah, which I think is, you're right, <laughs> the way a lot of parents feel. We always, we're doing our best, we're probably failing more than we're succeeding and probably harder on ourselves than we should be, but you're right, you, you don't know any other way, there's no easy way to do it, and particularly in this case, you're right, because of what this guy is uh, limited by, it's not like he can, you know, take her to the local Chuck E. Cheese. <laughs> they're fighting for their lives here, so they're always <laughs> staying indoors and he's, yeah, he's parenting for no good reason. To, to give him, uh, you know, a couple hours break. Yeah, yeah, exactly. This guy's never getting a rest. Um, Zach, talk to me about Bruce Dern. It was terrific in Nebraska, which I think was kind of sparked a, a late career renaissance. Tarantino's used him, of course, in a couple of movies, Hateful Eight and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. To me, this is a, a big get for a couple of youngish guys like you, your filmmakers. Like you said, you're willing to cast it yourselves, and all of a sudden you get Bruce Dern. How'd you get him? Yeah, it was pretty amazing. You know, we we he was actually um, the first, kind of famous person to come on the movie at all we we it was actually from nebraska i was we were thinking about you know who are some who are some older actors who could really add gravitas to that and, and nebraska came to my mind and we sent out the script and he got back to us almost right away you know which is very rare a lot of actors never read the script and never get back to you <laughs> and he got back to us um and he just really connected um to this character and to kind of saving his daughter. You know, Bruce Stern hasn't, he's only done one other science fiction movie, which was in 1972 <laughs> called Silent Running. And he kind of, after doing that movie, uh, in a lot of ways decided not to do science fiction anymore because he felt like, you know, we don't agree, but he felt like it was all just kind of bullshit and made up and wasn't like real, real intensity, which is really what he goes for. And so we're really honored when he kind of, you know, the whole point of doing Freaks was to make a movie that that 
felt very real and felt very personal, even though it was in a sci-fi world. And so he really connected to that idea. And he really connected to the idea of saving his daughter and kind of being this man who's obsessed with that idea. Um, and that that's something that really connected to him as a father. You know, he has um, obviously Laura, who's very famous, um, but it's not widely known, it's, it's public, but not widely known that he actually had a daughter before Laura who died very young. And uh, so he, and he still holds that, you know, with him now in his eighties, <laughs> um, that, that emotion is still right there. And he just saw, you know, a personal driven story that he was really excited to, to dig into. And he was also really excited to, to dig into it with someone like Emil Hirsch. You know, one of the first things he said to us, you know, although he used a lot more swear words that I'm going to say is, uh, you know, who's going to play that, that father? Cause he better be able to dance. Cause I'm going to dance with that guy. Cause he basically was so excited to just dig into these scenes where he was, um, you know, in a lot of conflict with Emil Hirsch's character. And those are some of the most powerful scenes in the movie where these two great actors are just going back and forth at each other. And some of those, we just ended up shooting for like 45 minutes continuously with just those two actors screaming at each other. <laughs> we had to cut it down to just a few minutes in the movie. Um, but they're both just kind of so in the moment. And so it was really exciting to be able to, you know, shoot with them and, and kind of work with those legends. It was definitely a movie that was very small that had no right having such big actors in it. But, you know, when we were writing the script, we, we tried to write characters that were really, really interesting and really juicy and, and had, they were never good. They were never evil. They were just this sort of juicy middle messy ground of, of people trying to just do what they thought was right. And we did that on purpose so that even though we couldn't pay a lot of money and even though we weren't famous film directors, that, actors of kind of that caliber would read the roles hopefully and see that there was a really interesting juicy character there and that's something that you know bruce saw and so did emil that's really well said that's terrific backstory there bruce i had no idea that's right about his daughter passing away and you're right how that could uh, certainly impact a guy and uh, he can nurture that use it in his art adam as soon as i heard freaks i said oh my god they're making the remaking the todd browning movie which by the way was on tcm last week i haven't seen it since like you know, film school. So I watched a bit of it again. I mean, it, it's still, I mean, pre-code horror film. It's, I mean, there's there's stuff in there I still don't know how the hell they made. But did you guys, was it any sort of homage to the 1932 film? Was it just a title you guys liked? Is there any backstory to calling it Freaks? You know, we we were aware of the of the movie. You know, it's, it's, it's a classic. Um, and we, it wasn't really an homage. It was sort of like more about our world where we were trying to come up with a word that could be used as sort of a, a derogatory um, epithet uh, to, to, to target people in this world who, who are considered freaks. Um, and we explored like all, a bunch of different kinds of words we could have used. And none of them really had the sort of that, that kind of derogatory nature we kind of wanted to, to create a, almost like a swear word in the context of this world that people use for these, for these outsiders. And then we tried, to, we tried to use any other word, and we just kept coming back to this one um, as sort of the, the, the perfect thing that, that works for our world. At the same time, you know, as we were making the movie, 
it wasn't really an homage to the original, but we did feel like there was a thematic resonance and a thematic uh, sort of uh, uh, connection to the to that movie because really in the end, with the, the themes of our movie are about are about um, being different, and when you're when you're different in a way that society doesn't approve of or that um, you know people don't like, you basically have two choices: you can try to hide who you are and live in, in, in the safety of a, of a mask of being someone else. Or you can stand up for who you are and kind of fight for it, even though it's dangerous. And that has sort of a thematic echo with the movie from 90 years ago, um, even though it's not really connected you know, plot-wise or story-wise or anything. We felt like that theme is sort of um, a, a, a brotherhood with that original film. Um, and... You know, it's 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 been 90 years, so hopefully people forgive us for using that word again in the title. Um, but uh, you know, we're we're fans of that original film, and we're probably influenced it, influenced by it. You know, as we went. Well, I only hope that uh, this film is as remembered as that film is. Uh, certainly, I think it's like I said, powerful, and you guys do an excellent job of providing the thrills and chills and spills that you're expecting from a genre film. Yet, there's it's emotionally resonant, and it plays with those parental themes really, really well done. Ninety percent on Rotten Tomatoes right now. Freaks is opening. Friday, September 13th, the critics' consensus currently reads a clever sci-fi horror hybrid that suggests a bright future for co-writers, co-directors, Zach Lepofsky and Adam Stein. Really appreciate the time today on Cinephile, fellas, and best of luck with the film. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for for talking to us and and spreading the word about the movie. Really, uh, really appreciate it. All right, you got it, Adam. Take care, boys. Night. Thanks, Mike. Mount Rushmore. All right, so the Mount Rushmore this week. By the way, thanks as always for appreciating us by letting us know what you think. Namely, Rob Lemley, who always appreciates a little bit of snark, asking if I was concussed after my Mount Rushmore last time, didn't care for my list. He did offer up some good choices, including Crazy Heart, was listening to the soundtrack the other day. Uh, the topic was uh, movies inspired by the music. Uh, he also the dreadfully overrated Almost Famous. Um, he did also include The Last Waltz, which I've mentioned so many times. Of course, Bill know how much I like Scorsese and The Last Waltz. It's a concert film. I'm looking more at movies inspired by the music. Um, but definitely Crazy Art's a great one. And another great choice, um, he also offered a long line. You know, now I forget what it was. Sorry, Lamb, I forget what it was. But it was a definitely a good movie as well. Oh, it might have been uh, Inside Lewin Davis. No, it was Swingers. Swingers, great movie. Swingers is a ton of fun. It was part of that swing music craze he had back in the 90s. Definitely a killer soundtrack. And the music is something you often think about when you think about Swingers. This time, Mount Rushmore of high school comedies in honor of Booksmart. Lots of great choices here. Uh, Joe's put together a list, I know. But I'm going to just fire off my list first here, Joe. Um, I love to get in Can't Hardly Wait for my girl, Jennifer Love Hewitt. But Election, to me, is a no-brainer. Reese Witherspoon, Alexander Payne, scathingly funny. Matthew. Broderick. It's part of that great class of 1999, which we'll be talking about another time uh, here on um, 
on Cinephile. Juno, I think, is a great movie. It's very funny. It's very smart, well-acted across the board. Jason Reitman's film. Ferris Bueller's Day Off. It's tough not to get that movie in the mix as well. So, so far, I've got Ferris Bueller's Day Off. I've got Juno. I've got Election. And, of course, for me, a no-brainer, Rushmore, one of my favorite movies. Uh, Wes Anderson, about a character who finds what he loves most, and that would be his personal Rushmore. Bill Murray is fantastic, of course. Uh, Jason Schwartzman, uh, terrific movie. It really kind of showed the zeitgeist of Wes Anderson, his attention to detail, and the fact he could mix uh, such sentimental movies with such personal movies, which are also very idiosyncratic. I'm sure, Joe, you've got to maybe super bad on the list. She's all that. What do you got for your best high school comedies? I do have super bad on the list. Uh, when it came out, I saw it in theaters. I was 17 when it came out, and I thought it was the most hysterical thing that I had ever seen in my life. Um, some more for sentimental reasons. After that, I have Mean Girls, the Tina Fey written comedy with Lindsay Lohan. It just it was such a quotable movie. Even now on social media, I see people quote it. Then my curveball is Better Off Dead with John wow. Cusack. Yep, I did it. And John Cusack, this is his least favorite film that he's ever made. And there's this whole weird claymation scene in the middle of it that I absolutely adore. And then my last one is Dazed and Confused. Uh, one, because I think it's a great film. But two, it launched the careers of Matthew McConaughey, Jason London, Ben Affleck, Mila Djokovic, uh, Parker Posey's in it, Adam Goldberg. It was all of these people's first movies, and they went on to have great careers. Mila Djokovic is in Dazed and Confused? Is that right? That's oh, crazy. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. What's not aware of that? Um Okay, I was hoping you might try to get Easy A in the mix. Maybe they'll bring it on, Kirsten Dunst, but I, I think your list is, is pretty strong here. Uh, shout out, by the way, to Porky's, which is the highest grossing Canadian movie of all time. I don't, maybe it's different now it's adjusted for inflation, but growing up, I know people would ask me the Canadian film industry. I'm like, well, listen, Porky's was produced by uh, Canadians, so clearly shows uh, <laughs> where Canadian minds were at that point in time. Once again, let us know what you think of the list. And by the way, you mentioned that sequence in Better Off Dead. There's a great sequence in Booksmart. I don't want to ruin it for people. I didn't do it as part of the review, but there is a sequence where they actually become dolls, which is absolutely hysterical. The animation and what they're saying is very, very funny. The Bada Binge. All right, once again, it is The Bada Binge. That's right, we're firing through The Sopranos. Earlier we talked about the first half of season four. Now we'll talk about the second half of season four. Um, you know, there's there's so much to cover in this season, although, as I mentioned, it wasn't one of my favorite seasons, which is why I want to kind of just fly through it a little bit. So uh, season four, episode seven is one of those episodes that you realize what they were doing wrong, which is focusing way too much on other supporting characters. And they got this whole subplot involving Zellman, who's an assemblyman, and uh, his old activist friend, Maurice Vondy Curtis Hall. And it's, it's interesting, but it just it takes way too much time away from Tony. You know, the season three premiere has the smallest percentage of Tony's screen time of any episode. That was Mr. Ruggiero's Neighborhood. But this episode is about the collateral damage unleashed by Tony's crimes. You don't get nearly enough of him. With the exception of this, which is a great, great moment. While driving at night, at the end of the episode, Tony hears Oh Girl by the Shylights. That's a song played earlier in the episode discussed by Tony and Maurice right after Zelman breaks the Irina news to him. And he begins to sing along as he often does with his favorite tunes. This, by the way, is from the Soprano Sessions. Matt Zoller cites and Alan Sepinwall. 
As the fellow's right, within moments, though, the joy of recognition is replaced by a wave of tearful regret, vulnerability, and anger. Is it about Irina, whom Tony used and discarded? Is the song bringing him back to a younger, much happier time when he first heard it? Does it simply make him feel weak and in desperate need of appearing strong? Or is he transferring his grief and guilt over Gloria onto Irina, who has moved on in a different way? Whatever the explanation, Tony barrels into Zelman's home, braces past Irina, and belt whips Zelman, channeling Rick from Casablanca as he sneers, all the girls in New Jersey had to blank this one. Tony's mood swing in the car is an extraordinary piece of acting from Gandolfini and an all-time Sopranos moment. Couldn't agree more with these guys. It also offers further evidence that the easiest way for the Sopranos to prove its superiority to the rest of television wasn't to belittle it nor even to experiment with its format and focus. All it had to do was simply be the Sopranos. As a whole, watching too much television isn't the Sopranos at its best, but its last five minutes sure are. Absolutely. Look it up on YouTube. That whole sequence is amazing. Uh, also, Whoever did this season four, episode uh, nine, that's where Ralphie gets killed. Joe Pantoliano won the Drama Supporting Actor Award at the Emmys, the first Sopranos actor other than Falco or Gandolfini to be Gandolfini rather to be honored, submitting whoever did this as one of his two episodes. Surprisingly, the other one was Christopher, though this may have been an attempt to show the range of his performance. Whoever did this was clearly enough. Joey Pant spends half the episode as a corpse. But that sequence where he sees his son injured, uh, his son Justin wounded while shooting arrows with a friend, it shows you that this guy is the most wretched of all the Sopranos supporting characters. He's absolutely callous, a womanizer. He killed Tracy. I mean, he's brutal. But that scene, as a parent, when you watch it, you say, listen, man, doesn't matter who you are. Your son is injured, and you can see the pain that Ralphie feels. It's an incredible piece of acting by Pantoliano. And then later, he gets killed. Uh, they're arguing about the secret ingredient for eggs, and him and Tony go after it. You're not sure if Ralphie actually did kill Pio Mai, but ultimately, Tony's brute strength and rage overtake him. And how about one of the biggest shocks of the year? The wig falling off Ralphie's severed head when Christopher shows up drug-addled, that's a crazy scene as well. So that was uh, episode 9. Episode 10 is a strong, silent type, which again shows further the um, affair that Carmela is at least feeling emotionally with Furio, saying when she talks to Rosalie, it is real, we communicate. He looks at me like I'm beautiful. He thinks I'm interesting when I talk. Just those few minutes when we see each other, I live for those. I feel like my life is slipping through my fingers and I will never be happy. So Carmela's story really starts to take place. Couple more episodes, calling all cars, etc., and then you got Whitecaps, which is one of the best episodes of the entire Sopranos series. The finale of season four. This was, even though as I've criticized the season, this was the show's highest-rated episode. And I think this was the best-acted episode of the entire series at this point. When Carmela tells Tony, "I don't love you anymore. I don't want you," it's amazing just how the rage that uh, Tony feels and how primal it is. Um, Irina's call shatters that piece. Listen how good Matt and Alan's writing is. In its place is a series of arguments that are theatrical in their intimacy, their ugliness, and the sheer power that Edie Falco and James Gandolfini bring to them. Who's afraid of Virginia Mook? Carmela's comment from the pilot about Tony going to hell when he dies, her growing up around Dickie Moltisanti, other wise guys just like Tony and, of course, Furio. It's the last that finally brings out the animal in Tony, who nearly takes Carmela's head off before fitting his fist through a wall instead. Perhaps even scarier are the two words that come out of Tony's mouth moments after that punch. Livia's all-purpose taunt to poor you. Tony once said that Livia wore his father down to a little nub, and it feels like this is what he's done to Carmela. I remember this was a huge point in terms of pop culture, the fact that 
Tony and Carmela split. I remember getting the Toronto Star used to subscribe to it, and the headline just said, One Lonely Soprano. It was a huge episode at the time to see Tony and Carmela split. And so often you'd looked at the dissolution of Tony and his financial interests or the mob life or Jackie Jr. being murdered. But this was about the dissolution of the marriage. This is a guy who cares about his family. You get that from the first episode. And instead, his family is absolutely now in tatters because of his actions, because of his extramarital affairs, and the fact that Carmela cannot take enough. Anybody who ever questions uh, the three Emmys that Gandolfini and Falco won should watch the episode Whitecaps. It's absolutely outstanding seeing these two actors, two of the greats you've ever seen in television of our era, when they go toe-to-toe, the verbal daggers they are firing at each other, it is nothing short of extraordinary. That's it this time for Cinephile. Thank you, as always, for checking us out. Subscribe, unsubscribe, resubscribe again. Tell all your friends. Rate and review. Tweet us at CinephilePod. Add me and S. Uh, once again, my thanks to the directors of Freak, Zach Lepofsky, Adam Stein. On behalf of my man, Joe, we'll see you at the movies. Mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.